My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thank you for tuning in to the 20th official episode of The Riley Rant. As was noted in the intro, we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. And with the 4th of July just two days away, I wanted to devote this rant to the political. For those of you who are familiar with our nation's history, you'll know that on July 4th, 1776, Thomas Jefferson and others wrote the Declaration of Independence. And one of the famous lines from that document reads as follows. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as I began to think about this quote and about the ideals that have sought to guide and direct this nation, I thought with the upcoming celebration of our independence from Great Britain, it's a great time to ask and pose one simple question. Are we the land of the free? I ask this question realizing that from the start, these ideals have not been afforded to all people. When Thomas Jefferson talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we know that he's only referring to, at that time, white landowning males. And so how do we deal with and grapple with the contradiction of ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness uh, when the architects and authors of these very words were also the owners of slaves uh, who perpetuated subjugation, exploitation, and disenfranchisement. How do we reconcile those facts? And so I want to spend this rant, this 20th episode, really going through these ideals of life, firstly, liberty, secondly, and the pursuit of happiness, thirdly, to see how we still have gaps and disparities in this country and how if we're serious about becoming a more perfect union, we have to be serious about addressing each of these three pillars and finding ways to gain ground because our nation depends on it, our future depends on it, and if we continue to live in a society where we relegate certain segments of the population to the margins, we will not be able to realize our true potential, not only from a human dignity perspective, but also uh, there are studies out there that show that diverse workforces, that diverse populations can oftentimes bring about innovation, progress, growth, and success. And so realizing that not only from a human dignity and a human decency perspective, it's important, but also because it's in the best interest of our nation if all people, all diverse subsets of our population are empowered to be active participants in society, we all benefit. And so I think that this rant is going to be extremely important. Thank you for tuning in. And I hope that you will listen to it in its entirety as there are some interesting facts and findings that are worth uh, learning more about and better understanding. Let's start with life. Growing up, I would always see a commercial uh, for the Susan G. Komen Foundation. And the Susan G. Komen Foundation is the largest fundraising and education event around breast cancer. And they do every year the Race for the Cure, which is a series of 5K runs and walks. And I was looking on their website and, and, and realized that they've actually invested over $2 billion in advancement to end breast cancer and to really fulfill their mission of ensuring that people are aware of the causes of breast cancer and that there's research that can ultimately help to cure and eradicate the disease. 
And so growing up, I would often see the commercials, people in their pink shirts and people in their pink ribbons. And I thought, you know, that's great. They're focusing and shining a light on breast cancer. Similarly, I came across sort of in high school, the Movember Foundation. And the Movember Foundation is similar to the Susan G. Komen Foundation in that they're trying to raise awareness about disease. But with respect to the Movember Foundation, they're focusing particularly on men's health and raising awareness around prostate cancer and testicular cancer. When looking at the Susan G. Komen Foundation, not once did I ever say, what are they doing? Why is Susan G. Komen focusing only on breast cancer as if there are no other diseases or cancers in the world? I mean, there's lung cancer, there's prostate cancer. Why are they only focusing on one form of cancer? Similarly, when looking at the Movember Foundation, you know, why are they only focusing on men's health? There are women's health issues that need to be addressed too. How dare they only shine a light on men's health? But I can guarantee you that I've never said this, and I'm sure you've never said that because you understand that, yes, while Susan G. Komen is focused on breast cancer and while Movember is focused on prostate and testicular cancer, they're not at all saying that all other cancers are not worthy of inquiry, not worthy of funding, not worthy of research. All they're saying is, yes, all forms of cancer are bad, but we want to shine a particular light on this particular subset of cancer that we want to raise awareness about because it's important to us and because it has real life implications for our communities. So if we can allow that nuance for Susan G. Komen and for Movember, why do we have such a hard time affirming that black lives matter? Why is it so hard for us to comfortably say without a shadow of a doubt that black lives matter in this country? We afford this nuance to Susan G. Komen. We afford this nuance to Movember. But for some reason, we can't fix ourselves to allow for the Black Lives Matter movement to allow for it to voice its opinions and its concerns and bring them to the forefront of society. And when we think about Black Lives Matter, we often hear, uh, or I often hear, two main objections. The first is that all lives matter. And the problem with that initial response is that it erases the very real issues that the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to bring about. And it oftentimes derails the conversation. If whenever someone says Black Lives Matter, you respond saying, no, all lives matter, you're derailing the conversation and you're not allowing the very real perspectives and issues that this group is trying to bring to the forefront of society, you're not allowing that to come to light. And I'm a strong believer that you can't resolve or address a problem until you admit that it exists. And by continuing to say all lives matter in response to Black Lives Matter, you're not allowing us to address some very real problems that we have as a nation. And until we're able to state that it is a problem, there will never be an impetus or a call to action to resolve it. So that's my first uh, counter argument, I think, to the all lives matter movement is that it's only a way to derail, and it's also disingenuous because the Black Lives Matter movement is not saying that no other life matters. What they're essentially saying is that, yes, all life matters and all life is worthy of decency and dignity and respect. And we see within a subset of our population that that treatment is not being afforded on an equal basis. And so we want to raise awareness so that we can ensure that black life is elevated to the status that we believe that all life should be at. And when we see those disparities and we see through policies that that's not happening, we have every right to speak up about that and, and really state those grievances because if we don't state them and if we don't address that the problem exists, we'll never be on the path to solving it. But then the second thing that I often hear when talking about Black Lives Matter is that the group is too radical or I disagree with this policy and so therefore I can't agree with or support the movement at all. And my response to that is that we don't have to agree with every aspect of every movement, but we can still support the principles and the foundations. 
Similar to the ways in which many Republicans in this current political climate have stated that they disagree with Trump, but that they still support Republican principles, that, that reveals to me that it's possible, that it's possible to be associated with the Democratic or Republican Party without necessarily supporting every action or every policy or every stance that they take. And so if we can do that within our own political parties, and if we can uh, have a realistic expectation that we may not always get everything that we want out of movements, um, then we can begin to realize that although it may not be everything that we want, at the foundation, the political party, or in this case, the Black Lives Matter movement, is standing up for and reaffirming a truth that we all should be able to get behind. And that's that all lives in the country matter. And when we see disparity within the black community, we have a right to assert that black lives matter to bring those disparities to light. So that's why I think that we need to push past the many uh, reasons we try to create for not supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, because in doing so, uh, we can actually get onto the path of solutions uh, versus attempts to derail or to absolve ourselves from participating in the movement through excuses that wouldn't fly in any other instance. So your attack on uh, Susan G. Komen wouldn't fly because people understand that Susan G. Komen is not saying that no other cancer matters. Your attack wouldn't fly on the Movember Foundation because we understand that, yes, they believe that all people should live healthy lives, but they want to focus particularly on men's health. We afford that flexibility in those instances. I don't see why we can't do the same within social justice and black liberation movements. But it's so important for us to raise awareness around this idea and this notion that black lives matter uh, because we continue to see within our mainstream instances and examples of where we are falling short uh, of that creed and that ideal in the Declaration of Independence, which speaks to people's freedom to life. If you were watching the news a couple of weeks ago, you'll know that Philando Castile was driving in a car with his fiance Diamond Reynolds and their four-year-old daughter. They're pulled over for what appears to be a busted taillight um, as he's interacting with the officer in the passenger side. Philando informs the officer that he has a license to carry and that he has a firearm in the car. He then proceeds to reach into his pocket to present his ID. Uh, the officer uh, begins to uh, sort of raise his voice, tell him to stop moving. Conversation ensues and shots are fired into the car and they strike Philando. What's horrific about this event is that it was actually recorded by his fiance Diamond Reynolds uh, via Facebook Live. Garnered a lot of national attention and it reappeared in the news about two weeks ago um, after we learned that the officer involved in the shooting death of Philando Castile was found not guilty of any charges. He was acquitted of all charges of all wrongdoing, and he ultimately will not serve any time for the shooting death of Philando Castile. But what's striking is that the county attorney, Choi, who was the one who brought the case before the court, he said, I would submit that no reasonable officer, knowing, seeing, and hearing what Officer Yanez did at the time, would have used deadly force under these circumstances. But when you think about the Philando Castile uh, death, and when you think about the event and the interaction that was recorded by Diamond Reynolds' fiance, but also by the dash cam footage, what you'll begin to see in the footage is a bias that many people, as studies have shown, hold about black men, particularly in society. John Paul Wilson of Montclair State University he conducts a study, and he finds that participants judge the black men to be larger, stronger, and more muscular than the white men, even though they were actually the same size. Participants also believe that the black men were more capable of causing harm and a hypothetical altercation, and troublingly, that police would be more justified in using force to subdue them, even if the men were unarmed. So we now have psychological 
studies that inform us that a bias does exist in America. And this could have been implanted and embedded in our minds through indoctrination over the course of time. You see in the 20th century, in particular in the 19th century, this uh, categorization and classification of the black male is dangerous as trying to steal white women, which validated lynching. So we don't know how much of that played a part in this current bias that we hold. But regardless of the cause of the bias, there's no denying the fact that the bias does exist. And we live in a society where people view black men as larger, stronger, and more muscular than they are, and that this perception of the black male actually warrants and justifies aggressive use of force to subdue them. And so when we begin to see Philando Castile or Freddie Gray or others, we have to also look at it within the context of psychology and bias to say, before the interactions are even happening, what biases are being brought to the table when we're interacting with police officers? What prejudice or what stereotypes are being incorporated into our understanding of who we're interacting with? And that's true not only for interactions at work or in your community, but also with respect to interactions with the police. And so the fact that we have psychological studies that validate a truth that many believe um, that bias does exist, it's not as wild to imagine a world in which we continue to see black men in a situation where deadly force is seen as necessary and justifiable. But beyond police brutality, it's also important to highlight other ways in which our society has failed black and brown people. And that provides a nice segue to the second topic of liberty. Now, we understand that there is an inherent contradiction in this belief of liberty, particularly when Thomas Jefferson and others had owned slaves. And it wasn't until the 13th Amendment that slavery was abolished. But we all know that though it was abolished and removed on the books, that in practice it still existed and that in practice states still found ways to create what many terms slavery by another name. And the way in which they did this was through the use of vagrancy laws. And Devin Douglas Bowers, he does a great synopsis or a summary on how states tried to adapt to this new norm. And he focuses particularly on North Carolina where he notes that after slavery, white and black Southerners were working on their own farms. And this really hurt the North Carolinian industrialists and agriculturalists, as few could afford to pay workers until the crop had grown. And so in order to solve for this labor shortage, this labor scarcity, the states introduced vagrancy laws. And vagrancy laws basically ensured that a person who had no means of survival or refused to work, that they would be regarded as a vagrant and sent to court, convicted, fined and potentially imprisoned. Now, with respect to newly freed slaves, Devin Douglas Bowers notes that the laws were much harsher and that once these freed slaves, these newly freed slaves were convicted, they were apprenticed to their former owners under a contract or they were leased to a corporation. And this led to a dynamic where vagrancy laws uh, ran rampant throughout the South. And it basically was so vague and ill-defined that any free black person who was not under the protection of a white person, uh, they could be arrested. And the real significant nature of this collusion, not with the Russians, but this collusion between the states and these corporations is most evident uh, with the state of Alabama. I was doing a, a quick Wikipedia search and I found that in 1898, 73% of Alabama's entire state revenue came from convict leasing. And so the states found a way to make money off of arresting newly freed slaves, placing them back in the possession of their former owners or corporations, and they would make money off of those workers and their labor. And as we see from that Wikipedia article, 
that in Alabama and in many other states, it accounted for a significant majority of their revenue. And so you see how we have a nasty cycle and a nasty system forming where we talk about liberty in 1776, but we're in a dynamic in 1898 where we are infringing upon newly freed slaves' liberty and forcing them back into the very same systems that have kept them subjugated and exploited for way too long. And while it is no longer technically slavery as the law has abolished it, we see new forms and new systems arising to maintain the status quo. But beyond the convict leasing that we see in 1898, we also see a, a current day example of policies that seek to infringe upon people's liberties. And the one that I'm talking about is stop and frisk. There was a New York study done by the New York Civil Liberties Union where they found that 5 million innocent New Yorkers since 2002 have been stopped and frisked. The overwhelming majority of these individuals are black and Latino, but perhaps what's even more striking is that 87% or 9 out of 10 of those stopped are innocent. I don't know if anything else reeks of infringement upon people's liberties and freedom than the stop and frisk policy. What you're essentially telling me is that for every 10 people you stop, there's only a chance that you'll find one person who has contraband or a firearm on them. If those were my odds in Vegas, I would not place a bet. And it's crazy to think that we have cities across this country who are embracing this policy, who are wrapping their arms around this policy, when it has shown, particularly in New York, to not be as effective in finding perpetrators and uh, capturing and taking firearms off the street. What it only seems to do is create a dynamic where innocent people are having interactions with the police. And if you are a citizen who's falsely accused of something that you didn't do, how does that help police community relationships? If someone's accusing you or of looking suspicious when you've done nothing wrong, how does that help foster a better sense of relationship and community between the police and communities of color? And so it's shocking to think that these policies have still been embraced and adopted. And though new lawmakers are pushing back against it, it's just another example of how even in this current day, we have policies that seek to infringe upon people's liberty, that seek to subjugate people to searches that may not be warranted. But then it also creates a dynamic where people are having interactions with the police that only, again, reinforce notions of who the police are, what they represent, and what they're attempting to do in communities, particularly when they're empowered to act on policies that oftentimes target innocent individuals. But beyond the stop and frisk, we also see in cities across the country a heightened level of interaction with the police and black individuals. In Ferguson, a Justice Department report found that black residents made up 67% of the St. Louis suburbs population, but that they accounted for 95% of all jaywalking charges, 94% of all failure to comply charges, 92% of all resisting arrest charges, and 92% of all peace disturbance charges. After New York City police officer killed Eric Garner, the New York Civil Liberties Union computed arrest statistics, and they found that Though black and Hispanic New Yorkers make up 50% of the population, they accounted for 81% of the 7.3 million people hit with violations between 2001 and 2013. In Minnesota, the American Civil Liberties Union of Minnesota released a report showing that in Minneapolis, a black person is 8.86 times more likely to be arrested than a white person for disorderly conduct, 7.54 times more likely to be arrested for vagrancy, and 11.5 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession. Though they only make up for just about 24% of Boston's population, blacks were subjected to 63% 
of police civilian encounters from 2007 to 2010, as was noted by the ACLU of Massachusetts. In Newark, African Americans made up 52% of the population, but they represent 75% of all stop and frisk in the first six months of 2013, according to the ACLU of New Jersey. And in Philadelphia, my hometown, even though blacks and Hispanics in Philadelphia make up a little over 50% of the population, they account for 80% of the stops. The disparity was even greater for frisk, with minority residents accounting for 89.15% of all frisk. And so when you think about the dynamic that we're seeing play out in New York and Ferguson and Minneapolis, you have to begin to ask yourself, is this a mere coincidence or is this a systemic practice that works to infringe upon the liberties of black and brown people in America? And the last pillar is centered on the pursuit of happiness. And the pursuit of happiness, in my mind, is the belief that you should be able to, if you're not breaking the law, if you're not causing any harm, if you're not participating in any wrongdoing, that you should be able to live your life freely and that you should be empowered to pursue those things that make you happy. And for many, when you think about the pursuit of happiness, it can materialize in the form of buying a house or getting a quality education or getting a high paying job to have economic mobility and, and freedom to participate in activities that pique your interest and hobbies that make you happy. And we see even in the creed centered on pursuit of happiness, we find instances where the government has actively worked to ensure that that not be possible for certain segments of the population. With respect to housing, the Fair Housing Center of Greater Boston does a great summary on the Federal Housing Administration. And the Federal Housing Administration, also known as FHA, was created in 1934. And it truly revolutionized home ownership by creating our current financial mortgaging system where banks or others will back loans and you'll be able to pay off the loan over the course of 15, 20, 30, 35 years. But what the Fair Housing Center of Greater Boston notes is that the Federal Housing Administration produced a lending structure which helped to solidify racial segregation that still exists today. The FHA has insured over 35 million home mortgages since its creation in 1934. This is significant once you realize that the FHA also endorsed a practice of redlining. And redlining is literally the FHA's practice of looking at a map, seeing where the communities of color exist, drawing literally red lines around those communities, and basically making individuals within those territories or communities ineligible for FHA mortgages. And so if they've backed and insured 35 million home mortgages since 1934, and they also at the same time endorsed a practice of not insuring homes in African-American neighborhoods, you can see how the government is playing an active role in ensuring that all people are not able to realize and pursue that which makes them happy, which in this case is home ownership. But beyond the FHA, we also see the government playing an active role in exacerbating racial and residential segregation through its choice and determination on who will be eligible for the GI Bill. And the GI Bill, some would argue, was one of the biggest welfare programs in the history of our country. It was a setup in which the government guaranteed housing loans to veterans, um, so essentially gave them the capital to be able to purchase homes. Those homes then, since their creation, accrued a substantial amount of value over the decades, allowing for the owners to ultimately have a significant amount of equity uh, through the increased value of their home, which ultimately created intergenerational wealth as the parents were able to pass the home on to their children. Their children will ultimately be able to pass 
the home onto their children, and it keeps this big, massive wealth resource, uh, that being a home, in the possession of a family over multiple generations. And with that equity, you can then decide if you want to sit on it or cash out. And this is going to be effective in helping you to, say, fund your retirement to ensure that you can live a comfortable life after you decide to stop working. Or if you want to, say, pay for your children's education, you can do so because you have a significant amount of equity in a home to be able to refinance and, and leverage credit against your property to be able to fund certain things that are meaningful to you. And so the fact that the government through the GI Bill systematically prohibited black veterans from taking advantage of all aspects of the law and the benefit, you see how it destroys their ability to pursue their happiness because it doesn't allow them to gain capital and wealth that will accumulate uh, through equity over time to be able to fund those things that matter most to them. And beyond housing, another important component is education. And we see through the GI Bill that they essentially allowed for veterans to go uh, to school and to colleges um, at an affordable rate. And though some black veterans were able to benefit from this, uh, we see that there was still a disparity in who could actually take advantage of it. And so you have veterans able to tap into education at some of the best institutions across the country. With that degree, you're then able to gain access to white-collar, high-paying jobs. And this, again, reinforces wealth disparities and income disparities that are persistent to this very day as you have intergenerational wealth through equity in your home and through capital that's been accumulated uh, over the course of your long career where you're making a great salary to fund your lifestyle and to save and to invest in the stock market. These same liberties and luxuries were not afforded to black and brown people in America, and that helps to explain some of the divides that we see in wealth, in income, in education, and that's why we are in a predicament where we can say without a doubt that the government played a part in really not allowing people to pursue what made them happy uh, because it systematically cut out certain segments of the population from benefiting from measures that sought to elevate Americans, particularly after war. And so when thinking about our Declaration of Independence and the belief in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's clear that there are some real racial disparities and gaps that we need to address and resolve. We see that across housing, across education, across interactions with the police, we have a dynamic in which people in society, particularly black and brown people, where they're not able to realize their potential because they have to deal with not only interactions with the police, but also with systemic policies that are sought to disenfranchise them, that they're not able to realize their true potential. They're not able to take advantage of these rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as we work to resolve these issues, we have to change the language around how we go about achieving these goals. We need to stop saying if he had just followed the law, if he had just complied, this wouldn't have happened. Because as I mentioned earlier in the episode, we had the example of Philando Castile, who was upfront about his license to carry, upfront about the firearm, and that didn't seem to save him. So much so that you have the county attorney also noting this didn't warrant the use of deadly force. And so begins to beg one to ask the question, what could he have possibly done uh, to ensure that he was not shot in that moment? And the answer is difficult because there really is no understanding of what he could have done differently to ensure that he would be alive today. But then beyond Philando Castile, we also have to be careful not to think that respectability is going to save us. You may all remember Martise Johnson. He was a student at UVA. He documents his encounter 
uh, with the alcoholic beverage control in a Vanity Fair piece, he notes, On the night of March 18, 2015, three white alcoholic beverage control officers asked me for identification outside of a bar adjacent to the University of Virginia's grounds. I showed them my ID, which they wrongly assumed was a fake ID. After a brief interaction with these officers, I was slammed to the ground violently, detained with handcuffs and leg shackles, and arrested without justification. As the officers pinned me to the ground with their knees, blood flowed freely from my face, and my friends and classmates surrounded the scene, screaming with indignation and anger. They watched helplessly as I yelled, How did this happen? I go to UVA. Or what about Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates, who was stopped and arrested by the police in his home? Boston.com does a great summary of the events when they note, Police arrived at Gates' Ware Street home near Harvard Square at 12.44 p.m. to question him. Gates, director of the W.B. Du Bois Institute for African and African American Research at Harvard, had locked himself out of his house and was trying to get inside. Friends of Gates said he was already in his home when police arrived. He showed his driver's license and his Harvard identification card, but was handcuffed and taken into police custody for several hours. And so what these two events remind me of is this fact that respectability won't save you, that because you go to UVA or because you're a professor at Harvard, that doesn't absolve you from the very real issues that we're seeing in our country with respect to bias, with respect to interactions with law enforcement, and with respect to people's freedom and ability to really live their lives free of infringement of their rights. And I love the quote by Fannie Lou Hamer where she notes, But you see now, baby, whether you have a PhD, a DD, or no D, we're in this bag together. And whether you're from Morehouse or No House, we're still in this bag together. And that reminds me of that one very truth that I think we all failed to remember. And it's that perfectionism is tiring. That when we have people who are exploited and subjugated and relegated to the margins of society, we have to stop looking for them to be the perfect hero to justify why they ultimately should be alive or why they ultimately should not have encountered prejudice or discrimination. Stop telling me about the credentials of individuals who have been killed or have had problematic interactions in society, as that should not determine who lives or dies or who is treated with dignity and respect and who isn't, or of who deserves something and who didn't deserve it. We can no longer consider these disparities with respect to police interactions, housing, education, and economic mobility as a mere coincidence. No, they are actually intentional and systemic policies and practices that seek to exploit and subjugate certain segments of the population. And if we're serious about creating a more perfect union, we have to also be serious about questioning systems and institutions that perpetuate the injustices and biases that we so desperately need to eradicate from our society. So as you celebrate on Tuesday, this July 4th, with a cookout and some fireworks and the celebration of the independence of America from Great Britain, step back and ask, are we all truly the land of the free? And if we want to be that land that we espouse in those declarations and constitutions and other documents, then we have to be serious about acknowledging and addressing some of the gaps that we see, particularly across race, if we are going to live up to those ideals. Thanks for tuning in to the 20th official episode of The Riley Rant. Remember that if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's The Riley Rant. <laughs>